I think he appreciated Thelonious Monk, who's sort of a prime example of somebody who just so simple, impossibly simple and, and unforgettable. You have reduce things just to the purest, most minute kind of, you know, differences and nuances, and it works, it sings. And I think he kind of uh, got that from music. And I think Monk was, uh, you know, among the, the most important models for him because he's so unique in music himself. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live Art's look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Manneker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. This month, Pace Gallery opened a show of Kenneth Nolan's Stripes, Plaids, and Shapes, three of the lesser-known bodies of work by the celebrated Colorfield painter whose circles are instantly recognizable. The show is a continuation of one held in London earlier this year. In this two-part podcast, we speak to the artist's son, Bill Nolan. He tells us about his father's career, about Kenneth Nolan's relationship with fellow Colorfield pioneer Morris Lewis, and the pressure Kenneth Nolan felt after having succeeded so young in the art world. After that, we speak to Alex Brown, a director at Pace Gallery, and Douglas Baxter about Nolan's market and the show. Both Bill Nolan and Douglas Baxter talk about Kenneth Nolan's practice, which was highly dependent upon execution. We'll get to more of that throughout the podcast, but let's get started with Bill, who's a teacher and an artist in his own right. Bill Nolan, thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Glad to be with you. Me too. So I, I thought we could start maybe at the beginning. Your, your father somewhat began at the famous Black Mountain College, uh, where he studied with a, a number of artists, but Joseph Albers was the presiding light there. And I, I thought maybe you could give us a little bit of a sense of what that experience was like for him and how that, uh, you know, affected his career as an artist. Yes, there, there's a subtext, which was that, um, you know, Black Mountain was this parade of people, mostly from New York, I suspect, students and teachers. And Ken was a local boy. Ken and his brothers grew up during the Depression in Asheville. And Asheville was a, you know, was an extraordinary kind of a, an outlier because it was where presidents went this before air conditioning. So presidents went there in the summer and it was, you know, lots of wealthy people summered there. So there was more culture than there might otherwise have been, for example. There was a radio station in, I think in, I don't know, Tennessee or somewhere like that, somewhere in the South that just its reach was vast. So they got they heard all the music that, you know, all kinds of jazz and all kinds of music that was happening in real time. So he was very into music and it's a, it's a naturally beautiful part of the country in the Blue Ridge Mountains. So he was outdoors a lot all summer. And But he was a kind of a local kid who didn't have much. You know, the family did the father split and was off 
running and would show up occasionally and give the kids five dollars each or something and then disappear again there he met their mother she was playing piano in a um in a five and ten store or something in the window of a five and ten store that's where their parents met and then he you know the marriage sort of dissolved pretty quickly after four children i should say so his older two older brothers were kind of doing a little bit of the parenting and keeping an eye on them and, and they went into the service in world war ii before he did and then he joined the air force and so on so he when he went to black mountain his older brother i think had enrolled had been there maybe a year but he he was looked down upon at first and you know another kind of personality would have wilted to some extent or you know been off on their own and you know uh, felt slighted but he was pretty outgoing i think that was my impression a little bit audacious and he so he took the first semester of the foundational course with uh, albers and he really he saw it was kind of a clash apparently like the Ken Moffat uh, biography of Ken um talks about that that uh, he thought of Albers as at, at once sort of opening up lots of insight into European painting you know advanced European painting but he also thought of it as kind of rigid and almost technical and scientific uh which wasn't exactly to Ken's taste so he fortunately uh albers went on leave and ilya bolotowski took his course and ken meshed with him a lot better and was given a little bit more freedom for example so he then went on the gi bill he went to paris you know he sort of absorbed it all and uh, one of the questions you asked was about i don't know european influences or something but he a big influence was Paul Klee and I think it's sort of interesting to me you know it wasn't Picasso it wasn't the people that it wasn't is of interest and then who he gravitated towards really liking was of interest I think before he went to Black Mountain did he you know I assume he had uh interest in drawing and art you know on his own or was somehow either self-taught or had someone who instructed him or did he just sort of fall into it in this it's you know semi bohemian milieu where he knew he wanted to go to uh, a school and ended up in a school that emphasized uh this kind of art and and painting i i think he had inclinations uh he loved music and he i think he was drawing at home and because pencil and paper is pretty cheap <laughs> and he just was inquisitive you know he was curious about the world and then they were outdoors a lot it's such a beautiful place winter or summer and um so he was very tuned to nature and therefore to sort of light and color and i think it was formulating maybe before he acted on it you know fully but Lo and behold this school was started right there and his older brother went there and that sort of made it easy for for him to go and he and he clearly gravitates towards artists who uh, have a primary emphasis on color, you know, whether whether he found uh, Albers uh, and his color theory too uh, constraining, the, the fact that he also connected with Paul Clay suggests that that color was a big part of it for him. For sure. And I think that's probably the, the part of Albers' course that he liked the most. 
you know, was color relations and within a, you know, within a canvas. And and then how does he end up, I know he's in, in, in Paris, but how does he end up in Washington, D.C. and becoming great friends with Morris Lewis? Well, I think it was his, his mother during the war uh, worked, had some Pentagon job. She went, she moved to Washington. So he, and he was the second youngest. So uh, when he came back from Europe, you know, he wasn't that mature. And so he went there because of her and he got a gig. He got a job teaching at Catholic University and he, um, you know, which was an income. I think he probably had left my mother by then. I mean, she, he had, they had three children pretty rapidly and it was a passionate sort of true love marriage, but he was like his father. He was kind of a wanderer and, a you know, a roving eye type of guy. And then he had all this ambition that, you know, he he had been driving a cab and kind of helping to support the family that way. But he really just was so primed. He had, he had such a, a bug to become an artist and he had so much motivation. He lived there. He played bridge with her, with other bridge folk that she made had made friends with and um, got this job at Catholic University. And somewhere along the line, I think maybe Morris Lewis was teaching there or somewhere else. And they, they crossed paths. They were friends by the time he met Greenberg and Helen Frankenthaler, who were in who were coming down to Washington. And I don't know if they had reproductions of the painting or maybe she had it the mountains and sea in a show or something, but it it just completely unlocked. I mean, that's the way that he said it. That's the way people have written about it. It just gave them a sense of making a painting in the moment and in a, and where there's sort of you enter into it, enter into the process, and there's no turning back. You have to continually solve for what the next move is. And paintings fail that way. You learn a lot by failing. And I th- and and the other thing about Morris Lewis was he was I think eight or ten years older. He was older. He was born in the teens. You know, they were kind. You know, they were sort of at the same stage in the sense that they were both dissatisfied and looking for something. So the idea that two guys saw this painting that had a similar impact, a similar profound impact on them. It gave them something to move forward together with. He, ha- he had a real buddy and it, some it, another another researcher, in effect. Well, it has a kind of almost like Picasso and Brock uh, around Cubism aspect to it, except, you know, with, with Picasso and Brock, their, their work became for a brief period almost interchangeable. And, and for Nolan and Lewis, though the, you can see sort of some commonalities uh, between them, but their work is very different. Right? Thank goodness, you know. yeah. I think it would have been harder if it were if it were more direct, directly competitive. But I don't know that Morris Lewis was that kind of was a rat. I think that um, uh, the, the interesting thing for me, look, you know, kind of in retrospect, is that he had that was the, that was one of two key relationships. The other being David Smith of an older, somewhat more, especially with Smith, he was nearly 20 years older, an older artist who respected him, you know, who didn't treat him like some punk who respected him and, and was interested enough in what he was doing that that it was somebody to help guide him, you know, 
how to be an artist. He learned a lot from David Smith about production, how to set up to produce, you know, a series of paintings and and work on it every day and so forth. So I think that Morris Lewis, and ironically, Morris Lewis, uh, when he died, I think it was 62, he'd been painting in his living room in this uh, quiet little house and using Magna and probably he had got lung cancer. He was a smoker and he was stuck in this room with his turpentine and all this, you know, toxic stuff. And his obituary, Morris Lewis's obituary in the Washington Post was actually Kenneth Nolan dies. They made it, <laughs> they had it as Kenneth Nolan dying. And it was, I think, on the front page of the paper. And it, then they had to retract and say, no, it was Morris Lewis who had died. So it was actually printed in the Post and saw his own obituary. That's extraordinary. The dominant image of this period of his work are the circles or targets. And it seems that there's a, I don't know the dates, but there is the transition connected at all to Morris Lewis dying, or is it is it just coincident that uh, a, a, around a similar time he starts doing, uh, you know, these different bodies, the chevrons and and the shaped canvases and and stripes. I I'd ha- I I just I don't know which year he moved to New York. I think he may have already been in New York by then, but I'm not positive. Uh, the earliest circles he was still in Washington. That's true. So I don't know how that played out. Is there an origin story to the circles? One I heard, um, which I think might well be true, it was a, a stained painting that he did with these sort of blobs, you know, that were occupying uh, more the center. They were they were more or less centered, but kind of random and very thinly applied, soaked into the canvas. And apparently, according to my mother, she suggested, and I think he confirmed this before he died, she suggested that that he encircle it. And so he, you know, she has the painting in her apartment. She's, she's in her 90s and mid 90s and has dementia, unfortunately. It's a painting, you know, that sort of stained little incidents and then this crude black circle around it and i think that he if you look at some of the pain in some of the literature the moffat book for example they they show some paintings that are organized in such a way that there's room left out towards the edges out towards the corners so they're central centralized in a way so i think it's it, it was that kind of a he was creeping towards it hacking things into the middle of a, a canvas and then it became you know to to actually encircle it became a kind of revelation that he instantly seemed to know made a huge difference to him it, it helped solve the problem that he was work, trying to work towards. And the transition away from them, it just uh, having done it for a decade, uh, you know, ex- exhausted every bit of inspiration and, and moved on to these other ideas? Well, I was, I was so young, I, I don't really, I don't think it was a decade. That's the thing. So I'm not positive, the, you know, the number of circles and so on. But I think what happened is, that's what vaulted him to some kind of success and renown. And then in the early 60s, he switched, he began to switch over and he 
tried various things, but certain things stuck and he would, it would become a, you know, a discrete series. And he, in a way, uh, uh, I was thinking about this, he returned to the circles quite late, you know, much later on in the, I don't know what it was, the 80s maybe. And he, the paint technology had completely changed. Everything was different about the application because there were all these new thick mediums and, you know, way glazes and things you could transport lucencies and transparencies and so he basically returned to the to the format because of the opportunities you know of, of a different sort of exploration with all the new paint that he'd been you know he he was always getting fed new things from the paint companies you know he had access and he he was interested in them so and i'm surprised to see some of the early circles were acrylic but some were oil and um, i don't remember that I, I don't know why he i guess he must have had a better ventilated studio than morris lewis because he smoked so yeah. at any rate, I think that's sort of how he operated. He would arrive at a at a format experimentation. And one of the things I admire about him as an artist is his kind of willingness to he always had and seemed to have had a willingness to make awkward paintings and not destroy them, but kind of keep them to to learn from but to figure out what he didn't like about it and then he'd find the, the format and the way that he wanted to employ it and then he would relax about that and put all the pressure on you know what was going on or not going on inside the painting after he moves to new york i, I guess one of the things i'm struck by is he, he's got very strong museum representation i mean it's his work is well recognized well known but oddly he's an artist who's sort of reputation i don't want to say his reputation goes up and down because i think you know he he very much is you know uh, always there but in sort of other terms he sort of seems to you know, rise and fall in levels of interest, either from collectors or other things. And and I, I presume that, you know, took place over a, a, a long period because his work was so celebrated in the um, 60s and 70s and he lived to uh, 2012. 2010, yeah. Right. No, I, so, I completely agree. Um, it, it affected me because I, I saw the pressure got to be under because he reached such a pinnacle by the time he was in the Venice Biennale, uh, I think it was 64. Well, what are you going to do next? And and that was that was around when the art world started to get bigger and bigger. It was so much smaller in the 50s and, and the very early 60s. And he was entering, it was a different world. It was much more dissemination of, you know, different artists' work, competition and competing styles and so forth and movements and he had overhead he, he developed a pretty a pretty hefty operation especially when he was uh, you know just before he left new york to kind of really be up in in vermont and then later in maine you're dealing with a market that is fickle and is always looking to push people aside i mean constantly and it's almost inevitable and then you're used to operating as if you're going to continually sell paintings and that's not the way it works for most people and so i i i saw the effect that it you know and and it didn't it didn't stop him at all but it 
he had to go more inside himself, I guess, in a way. And he, he, he was he was very disciplined about following his instincts, make we willing to make bad paintings, you know, in order to learn something and arrive at something. And um, I really admired that. But I also, you know, it was cautionary because I, it, it, you, you realize that the trend, if there's if you could say that there's a particular trend, I think it's that artists get known, many artists get known younger. He was really young when he, you know, for that time, but he was probably 40, you know, 38, 40. Now that's, you know, middle-aged or beyond that's geriatric you know and they you know so all these young artists at 25 or 24 they're going to have some kind of a rude awakening most likely the the vast majority of them and it's a hard place to be put in if you you get sucked into it and it's you know the basis for the art world is so much more um, finicky now and kind of trendy and and it moves more quickly. Things weren't moving so fast in the 50s and 60s. Was there pressure on him to sort of, you know, go back to uh, making more of the uh, the targets just, or or what you're saying is you could have made targets uh, as many as you liked, but at that point sort of things had moved on and uh, he was just struggling to find something that both suited his interests and, and challenges, but also that buyers would be interested in. Know that it was the pressure uh, so much as, uh, you know, I was thinking about, I was anticipating that question and thinking about it. And I kind of tried to trace how quickly he moved away from the circles originally. You know, it seemed as if he quickly moved into some, and I forgot about some of these, I don't know what you would even call them, these avoid, these egg-like, paintings. And those are like 62 or 61. I was surprised at the dates. So he was moving away. He was trying to expand formats pretty quickly. And he could have rung, I think, you know, quite a bit more. I don't know how many circle paintings there are or were, but it's not a gigantic number. It's, um, I think that he for example, with when he was painting stripe pictures, it was a it was a long buildup and they were complicated paintings. He had, you know, several assistants. They were really hard, hard to make. Some of them are, you know, tremendously wide, you know, huge. And that's a different type of thing. The circles were very quick, you know, and it was one shot and it was stained in and you, you, it either succeeded or it didn't. And so he, I think he entered into a, that other phase of the stripe paintings was just so much more of a, a production. You know, it probably took quite a while to, to finish the paintings. And then his shape paintings, maybe like a combination of the two things, because they were so minimal. Um, these are ones where, you know, there's an odd surfboard sort of shape and there's a few stripes and they're so fine tuned. These are really were hard to, I found them hard to like initially or to appreciate really how rigorous they were because I, you know, they're so minimal and they're so, and the essay actually for the Pace show in London, uh, it's a, it's Jeffrey Katzen and he's talking about it's Kenneth Nolan's direct roots. It's a really interesting essay in which he says that something to the effect that when he limits each color goes on and then he has to get the next one right or there's no turning back or the painting is he has to abandon the painting 
by getting so minimal, he's uh, raising the stakes. And so it's they're so fine-tuned and, they, and they're just so on the wall and just tilted ever so slightly. They change the sort of body to painting relationship of the viewer. Yeah, are those two things connected? I, I thought part of what you were saying earlier about the immediacy, like you got one shot at the circles and if they work great, but if they don't, you, you can't really fix it. And then the stripes being so planned and executed, you know, the work comes before, but the execution is is less uh, spontaneous. No, what the essay is pointing out is actually that it's that they were complicated to the pay, the stripes were complicated to put together, but they also were sequential. So you had to, so the next color or the bigger band that got inserted, the color had to ring true, you know, with the, with the other colors or what he anticipated two colors afterwards or something. Uh, so, so did he actually respond to or incorporate that sort of sense of risk into his practice? I mean, it sounds like in, in many say is asserting, and that's what I think uh, rang true. And as soon as I read it, I understood. Um, yes, I think that's what that's part of what was going on. That you, it isn't like a. A sculpture that's that you can sort of keep. It's more like a marble sculpture where you know once you've struck struck the thing, you you've lost that part of the, mar- <laughs> the, of the marble. <laughs> yeah. But if it's a constructivist sort of approach, you can you know yank things in and out at will. There's no pre- you know there's not really that kind of pressure. Yeah, and the other thing I think um, as I look at your questions and prompts and think about it is how much the model his model was as much music and in particular improvised music as it was painters you know and and, and visual art in general he was really tuned into it, it was, um, he was you know really drawn to improvisation and he knew who was good. He he was a I think he appreciated Thelonious Monk, who's sort of a prime example of somebody who just so simple, like Matt, you know, you know, impossibly simple and, and unforgettable. You know, there's some combination of you're so you have reduced things just to the purest, most minute kind of, you know, differences and nuances, and it works, it sings. And I think he kind of uh, got that from music. And I think Monk was, uh, you know, among the, the most important models for him because he's so unique in music himself. Um, no, that's great because it, it does give you a much better sense of, you know, the simplicity also comes with risk and uh, it not not an easy thing to do by any means, even though the, the works themselves don't look very complicated. The, the risk is pulling it all off, uh, you know, like, like a jazz solo. Yeah. And the, one of the things that, that surprised me or kind of um, I respected so much, he just didn't to him. He was engaged in, you know, that painting and its nuances and what was bothering him or solving it for himself. And he could care less if somebody, you know, said, gee, that doesn't have much going on or just walks by it, you know, because he had spent a lot of time looking at it, feeling it, feeling what was bothering him, vetting it and being involved, you know, being completely involved in it and then setting it on the wall. And it's the relationship between, you know, the average human body uh, standing in front of it or moving along and, and sort of looking at it from an angle. 
he had worked that out, you know, really far. He'd gotten really far into it um, in every case. So he kind of got a lot of pleasure out of pictures that were maybe not as saleable as, as other series that he was engaged in. That's a, a you know a great overview of sort of how we got from one uh, to the other. One other, yes, another thing I, I had meant to bring up was sure. um, he had peers that were friends and rivals and friendly rivals and <laughs> sometimes not entirely friendly rivals, but he had close relationships. And then to for younger artists, he was really quite something. I have to say, he. he dispensed advice, had suggestions, was encouraging. They were less threatening, obviously, than, you know, somebody, uh, a competitor, you know, a close competitor. And but even with his even with his close artist friends, there was a lot of interchange. And I don't I think his personality brought that out in people. I think most people are not as open as he as he was, and uh, just something about his personality that um, that was friendly and curious that worked worked well for him and then those that that knew him. He also had some rivals, and you know there was some there were breakups and animosity and so forth. I would expect in almost any endeavor. I, I was just going to say that's what keeps people moving forward. Uh, the you know, uh, not, I'm not going to put up with that. He had a love hate relationship with uh, Greenberg, for example. But boy, you know, he, um, you know, they they was they really were um, they really got down to talk in great detail about art and about what he was doing and about what what he wasn't doing and so on. So, um, but he didn't teach it would have interrupted his arc i think he was on an arc he, he made such good paintings you know in in young middle age it required i think he i think he made the right decision let's put it that way all right so, bill i really appreciate the time it's been uh, uh great to talk to you well same here and it's good to meet you wish you well and keep me posted all right, I had a I had a lovely conversation with uh, Bill Noland, and we we talked about sort of the uh, commanding presence of the circles or targets in uh, uh, Kenneth Noland's uh, work, and and somewhat the struggle I think uh, he described, uh, you know, or the challenge of living up to uh, after having that body of work, uh, you know, getting people to respond to the rest of. Uh, uh, his work. I, I was wondering if uh, we could just sort of break it down and there are basically four main groups of uh, uh, works. Is that how we sort of think about and talk about uh, Kenneth Nolan's market? There's the market and then there's the body of work. So what would you think the four are? Circle stripes? Shaped canvases? Chevrons? Yeah, chevrons. Well, the plaids, don't forget the plaids. Uh, when those came out, um, one was featured on the cover of Art Four, and I'm old enough to remember that. <laughs> uh, I think the body of work is, is complex. That's one thing. The market always is simple-minded. The market isn't subtle or thoughtful or nuanced. I guess, yes, maybe those are the four people would think of. That basically covers the first you know, 20 years of his mature style you know, from the late 50s to the late 70s. Um, but yeah, and even within that, there are early chevrons and then there are the chevrons of the 80s and there are the early circles and the circles of the late 90s and the stripes of the early 2000s. 
Um, so there's nuance within that, but, you know, I'd also say a big part of what we're trying to do at PACE is, um, open up people's understanding that there, there's a lot to Noland beyond that, um, which I think is evidenced in our, our exhibition program. We did a show of the, um, flares, the flares had never been, um, embraced by the Nolan public, much less the larger public. Basically were ignored until, um, we did the flare show in March of 2020. <laughs> Good timing. But unbelievably, even during that terrible time, um, there was a great response to the show. Anyway, the Flare Show um, did extremely well, despite having never paid attention to before and despite um, its bad timing. Because there's a sense of discovery among collectors that if you sort of capture... Yeah, I think it's possible. You're right. Yeah. And I think they are, when you're in front of them, they are sort of distinctly Nolan. You know, I think innovation was so important to Nolan's practice. Um, and so you end up with these different bodies of work that are different, but they they sort of hold on to something that's essentially Noland. And I think the, the well, let's flares... Stick with flares right now, the, you know, Noland was a great colorist and the flares have great color and a physicality to them, the engaging. So, so what's the challenge when you have an artist who's, I mean, his reputation is incredibly strong and people recognize his work, uh, especially the the targets or the cir circles, but his reputation somewhat, you know, waxes and wanes and there's all this other work that people don't necessarily um, appreciate. Is, it, is there kind of a, a specific strategy around bringing people in or is it built around, you know, things like saying, okay, there's this body of the work, the flares that people haven't seen and don't quite get. We're going to do a show about that. And, and based on the success of that, I'm, I'm assuming this current show is somewhat of a follow-up to that, uh, uh, you know, and, and that success to be able to bring a different bodies of work to, you know, some of your um, clients and then just to the public in general. Well, this show really um, it's about showing the continuity in um, in Nolan's work, um, the, the continuity and the connectivity. They really, they're all, all of these are connected, and so, uh, these series, um, these bodies of work. And um, you see that visually in the show. I guess you can see it, you know, online. I think you can see it online, too, if you look through the show. Um, and I don't think anybody really had focused on that. Um, and I think they help explain each other and amplify each other. I think, for example, in the shape paintings, people tend to think of a shape, right? Um, but most of the, almost all of the shapes have stripes along the edges. And when you see one of the shape paintings with stripes and on another wall adjacent, a stripe painting, you know, the stripes really jump on the shape painting. Is there is there a connection? You know, I, uh, when you mention the stripe paintings, I think of those Anselm Riley paintings of uh, a decade or so ago, you know, with, with those stripes of various colors and foils. And and I think, you know, uh, in context of the uh, targets of the Ugo Rondinone. Ugo's work is in targets. And Noland neither, by the way. Um, Nolan 
Ken always referred to the circles as circles. And the content in Ugo's work is about spirituality, which is how they're different from Noland and not about Noland. Of course, you can't you know, disassociate. Um, so Ugo doesn't call his paint, you know, those circles targets. And they, they certainly have a landscape content, and they're really, you know, the, the content is, a, is spiritual. They were, he first started making circles in the early 90s when he was in Vienna and um, was thinking about Jung and the spirituality in art, and that was his idea of how to bring spirituality um, into painting. Um, and he, I don't think he was think, I, certain he wasn't thinking of Nolan at the time. And when he came to New York, you know, it became another matter. And, and there's, he, he's been friends with Katie Nolan, Ugo, and Katie sort of let him have it at one point and said, you're ripping off my father. And Ugo said, no, I'm not. If anything, it's, you know, an homage. But I wasn't even thinking of your father when I started on this. Um, but does that create an effect for, you know, uh, collectors to bring them back to the Nolans? That, I guess that's where I was going with it. Do, there's could, no proof, but I can imagine it didn't, you know, bring people to looking at Nolan again. No, I think I think absolutely that happens a lot when young artists do work that either is inspired by an older artist or just looks like um, visually related to um, another artist without being inspired by the work. I think absolutely that that can happen. So in the last uh, year or two, we've seen a, a, a number of very significant sales for those circles at auction. Um, you know, uh, I guess it was about two not even. It was, yeah, in 2021, uh, one sold for $4.2 million at auction. And then late last year, another sold for uh, almost three point two, And there had already been, you know, three more previously at that, that level. Uh, and I was just curious, you know, since you deal with the, the private mar market and, and know a bit more about what, what's going on, uh, you know, is that just a, a supply um, opportunity that, you know, these works be are becoming available? Is there something dr driving it on the demand side? You know, there have been a number more that have come up for sale. So that suggests that there's more interest, more demand uh, for these works. There's a lot of great museum representation for uh, those works uh, uh, as well. So I'm just sort of curious to how, how the demand uh, form. Well, I think there's certainly an appetite for that type of work and, and the scarcity, I think, is definitely a big part of it. Um, uh, well, it's also the invention. It's a moment of invention. And I don't know how much collectors think about art history now. Um, but they are very important moment in art history. They're, you know, the equivalent of um, what Jasper and Bob did in breaking with Abex while being totally influenced by it, except that Noland is more of a continuum with Abex. It's not, um, it's not an abrupt um, gesture. It's, it's really... A, continuous but at the same time it totally goes against you know everything abex was about there was an element of self-conscious process to it that um comes out of pollock um but there was no content there was no willed content um which is complete break with what the previous generation was doing so it's about process and 
That's the idea and that's the content. Yeah. So the people who come to this show, uh, whether the one in London or uh, the, the one here, who uh, then engage with you to find a work, you said just a moment ago that you know they're not really thinking about art history. How are they collecting Nolan in the context of the other works that they might collect? Are they looking for color field works? Are they looking, you know, is there some other thesis to the kinds of uh, uh, collections I know? you know it's idiosyncratic but I'm, I'm curious to if there are themes of the collectors who come to you I think people just respond to the work they're beautiful paintings they look completely fresh um, and they respond to the work um, and you know you have a 20th century master who's you know still undervalued um, though there may be some people you know seeing opportunity <laughs> Well, I guess that's that's the whole theme of this uh, uh, you know podcast is that he clearly is undervalued. There's been several attempts in the last few years, especially those auction um, prices I mentioned, where you know those works were put up. I, I I think with expectations of going further than the four million, and there, I don't see any reason that there shouldn't be uh, many of those paintings sort of at that price point uh, or above, and it's. Always, you know, it, the the market is somewhat unknowable, but it's always curious when you see these things sort of forming, uh, and they don't fully break out. And and maybe it's more that there needs to be what you're doing now, m more people active in buying some of the other works that will make the importance of these um, rare, uh, uh, you know, circle paintings, uh, uh, you know, apparent to, to collectors. That 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 happens in markets too. Sometimes that it builds up from the bottom rather than from the top down. Yeah. But I, th I, I think that the circles, the early circles in Nolan's work, the mark is something apart um, from the rest. There are other, you know, if you want to buy an early Nolan, you can still buy an early Nolan in another image and not spend anything close to $4 million. And, um, you know, and I think $4 million, by the way, is a healthy number. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not going out and paying four million dollars for a painting. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and you know, you have to basically earn ten million dollars to spend five. Um, so, it's a lot of money. Yeah, it, it is definitely a lot, lot of money. And I, I think you know, look, there, there, are many artists of that generation that the prices are rising but haven't yet uh, reached sort of other price levels. And, and and as you point out, I don't think that's necessarily the measure uh, of anything. But, you know, we're, we're, we are trying to understand markets and, and there is a bit of a, a sort of halo effect where when the price at the apex goes higher, it does allow you to price other things or it even just creates demand for other aspects uh, of their work. And that certainly seems to be, you know, so one of the opportunities here is that as those um, things go up, more people are willing to pay attention to these other aspects, which you point out, these are great paintings and, you know, getting people to pay attention. You know, the unfortunate thing about the art market these days is that auction prices are a form of marketing and validation uh, that people take cues from uh, rather than necessarily uh, uh, art history. Uh, but but it is, it's clear that 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 people are interested in Nolan. I, I assume, you know, the attendance in London uh, and your decision to move the show here is uh, somewhat uh, evidence of that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's, there's, and, and the sales, uh, you know, we sold well in London. Some of those paintings are coming here. 
Um, but we also had to get new paintings. So it's not really the same show and will look very different. You know, the show in London was in three spaces on two floors and then, you know, some adjacent spaces as well. It was very, um, uh, you couldn't be in the same space with all the paintings at once. And New York will basically be the one, you know, ground floor, 25th Street. So you can move, you know, there'll be walls, but there, you know, you can move from one room to another and essentially be in the same space with all of them. No, and it's a great space. Yeah. So, you know, it'll be, it's a different show. It'll be a different experience. Uh, it was beautiful in London. Um, I think everyone agreed. Um, and I hope in New York it will be as beautiful, if you know, somewhat different. Great. Is is there anything else we should uh, know about either the show or the uh, market? Well, we have a steady market for Noland. You know, obviously, when we have shows, there's you no, know, there's a focus both on our side and on the public side. Um, but it's very interesting. There's you know a kind of continuous and. Um, ongoing market for for Nolan. Um, yeah, it's sort of interesting to get the the have the conversation be so driven by auction because it's obviously something we pay attention to, but it's it's you know it it is separate from how we're building out our program and and you know we think of Nolan as having a, a very steady and successful market and there there's a real you know there was a real. Um, I think excitement and positive response to the idea of this exhibition in particular, the, the, you know, a, a strong shape painting can really get people's attention and, 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 um, can find a buyer, uh, you know, kind of easily. Um, so we, I, I do want to mention just about this show, cause I think it, it's worth talking about that. It's not necessarily a, um, uh, historical show, um, which I, I think in, in, it might present itself that way as looking at something, this development of the paintings from the late sixties to the early eighties. Um, and just to, to sort of add to what Douglas was saying earlier about how the show is really about seeing things in context. And that, um, I think is emphasized by the inclusion of, of late paintings, um, which to be totally frank was something I was sort of pushing against as we were designing the show. And Douglas was quite insistent on, and I'm very glad that he was, um, because it, 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 I think that, that idea of circling back to themes is so important in Nolan's work. Um, and so it makes this exhibition about not only the, the bodies of work that are being presented, but also about how Nolan worked period. Um, which I think, you know, and again, you know, as we're talking about what, what are we trying to achieve with an exhibition like this, we're trying to get people in and really, um, you know, show them these paintings. And, you know, I was talking to Douglas the other day about the the real revelation for this show, uh, for me in this show is is the plaids, which, um, you know, he, he was describing earlier this, this experience of seeing the stripes and the shapes together. And I think the plaids, which are definitely the, the lesser known of the three bodies of work, um, look just so strong and interesting in this exhibition. Uh, and I think it's, it's that context that achieves that. 
Um, so I, I really hope people come in and see that show and and uh, uh, get to experience the work in person. Yeah. No, look, it's very clear that not only is there a steady, but there is a growing and expanding market for Nolan's work. And by expanding, I mean, you know, you're able to see things priced at different levels, but many more sales and work sort of falling into uh, various categories. And then there's, you know, activity with, within them. And and obviously the auction prices are are always the tip of the iceberg and you know they're they're what's visible uh and they're what people used to navigate slightly but what's most important is that there's work and that there's an engagement with with the work uh so that you have some context around you know why you want a Nolan in the first place, you know, uh, and I think see for people to see that there are so many different types of work uh, and that there still seem, as Douglas just said, you know, striking and fresh and uh, engaging just as art without having to read a wall tag uh, and get dates or anything else by, by it is the, the key factor here. Well, he's a great colorist. He's you know, I think arguably the greatest colorist of the second half of the 20th century. Um, who else? Rothko, um, also a great colorist. So there just aren't that many really great colorists, uh, artists who really explore color as a sensual experience. Aaron Wilkin called him a, a fauvist, you know, and it's, it's, you know, the idea being that color was so forward in his practice, you know, that, that there, um, it, it, and it embraces that, as Douglas was saying, the sort of the, um, the emotional and the sensual capabilities of color. Well, that's one of the things Bill talked about a fair bit was that, you know, for, for these works are actually have a high amount of risk in them. And I gather the essay and, uh, from the other, the London show sort of talks about, about it. it Though they are very simple and they focus on a few things, they're hard, very hard to pull off, and they they are entirely dependent on on sort of the process and the phases at which they go through, and and so that you know sense of being on a high wire and not being able to plan uh, everything out in advance uh, really does make the, the the work seem even more extraordinary because it is a lot harder to pull off than it looks when you see it uh, done so well. Yeah, yeah. And he, he didn't, you know, uh, he didn't, you know, he sometimes failed and we don't see that, but, you know, the successes are um, extraordinary. I like the High Wire Act. And what did, uh, was it a, he called himself a one-shot painter? Yeah, exactly. Meaning he, you know, he had one chance to get it right uh, and it could fall apart. Um, so, you know, it's true. Maybe people sense that, um, that, kind of excitement um the work buried in the work well i i hope they do and i hope i get a chance to experience all that excitement uh when the show opens uh and i appreciate both of you taking the time to give me a little education in kenneth Knoll. thank you and thank let us you. know when you get in to see the show Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>